Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest is Joe Schrank, who is a social worker and interventionist, sometimes considered a rabble-rouser in the recovery industry, the co-founder of The Fix, and an old colleague of mine, and I'm really excited about talking to him today. He is a firm believer in meeting clients where their vision of recovery meets the community's vision of recovery. And more than that, he advocates for public health policy over incarceration, alcohol tax justice, and ending the violent and racist drug war. Thank you for all the work you do and welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Diana. It's so nice to see you, even though we never really seem to see anyone anymore. <laughs> but I know. I know. Nice to see it's you true. in the virtual, virtual format. <clears throat> awesome. So, Joe, what is the hot topic that you would like to discuss today? I always have about a million of them, but I would love to know yeah. before I get rolling, what, what's on your mind this morning? Um, well, I think the thing that's always on my mind in September is that September is recovery month, um, and nobody knows that it's recovery month and nothing happens. And I find that to be really strange given the, just how widespread the issue is. Um, and, you know, I take, uh, I, I guess I don't say this very artfully, but breast cancer is, I don't know, one in 200,000 births and spina bifida is one in whatever. Uh, and they're so much better organized with their awareness campaigns and fundraising. Addiction is one in 10 births in America. And so it's my contention that recovery month should be a big deal, right? I mean, it should be celebrated at MLB parks, the, I don't know, some kind of parade, something, but it's not. And I, I don't really understand, you know, how that works or why that is, but I meet this level of frustration every September. That's a really great point because I want to talk about, I think part of the reason we don't celebrate it is ignorance about what is exactly recovery means. We know what recovery from breast cancer means. It means being symptom and tumor free. We do not know what recovery from substance use disorders look like. And more than that, sort of how do we support those? There's messages given out there in the world that let go and let God or whatever. So how do we as family members engage in this recovery process. So that's a big comment of my own. But can you start a little bit before we go into what is recovery and how do we define it and all of that? What's your personal story of how you define recovery? My personal, well, look, I'm a pretty traditional guy in terms of recovery. You know, culturally, we understand certain things. And if you said to somebody, well, I'm a member of AA, they'd say, oh, my aunt goes to that. You know, um, we understand it. We understand total abstinence. Uh, that's the, the narrative that we're trying to push for a bunch of different reasons. 
So for myself, I've been sober for 25 years, um, you know, kind of a traditional, not super exciting story of depression and treating that with alcohol, which is, by the way, a disaster. I don't recommend that in any way. Um, and I'm somebody who was very lucky. I, I very much responded to AA. I responded to, first of all, to the oversight and guidance that I was getting from other men in AA. You know, that was really important as a young guy. Um, young men respond to direction and they want leadership. So I think that that was a really important thing for me. Um, with that said, I'm a clinically trained social worker and social work standard of care practice and ethics don't necessarily align with that. So in other mm -hmm. words, social work is meeting the client where the client is, understanding that we present them the options that they have and support the decision that they make. So that may look like what I do. It also may not look like what I do. So it, it can be a difficult thing to negotiate and it's kind of hard at certain times, like, well, what, which hat am I wearing? Um, am I wearing the AA sponsorship hat? Am I wearing the social worker hat? Uh, and it's hard from a policy and cultural perspective because the total abstinence narrative is what Americans want and it's what a lot of parents want understandably, but that's not always how things go. So, um, well, and let's be realistic, Joe, what people want and what parents want is abstinence for their loved one. Correct. Our culture does not want abstinence in general. The other family members may or may not want abstinence as a family policy. They want right. to see their loved one abstinent. Right. They want the individual to be abstinent because they don't want to worry about them. What they've been told is that the solution to any drug issue or substance misuse problem is total abstinence. You know, I always think, well, wasn't that supposed to be the solution to HIV? That didn't do anything but spread disease. Um, and, and, you know, that was always the thing. Well, abstinence is going to solve HIV. Like, yeah, yeah would have, but that's not how humans are. So I think that, um, you know, people want that partially because they're told that that's their only option. You know, they aren't told that there are many roads to recovery, that there are lots of different ways that people get better. So. So what are some of those other roads? I know some, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I think it's a hard it's very difficult to say because it's, it's hard to, um, to counsel people that you're not approving of their drug use, but that you're embracing them as a human, as their inherent worth and value, as their dignity as a human. Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard. It's, it's, it's hard. I mean, every parent knows their preference is that their teenage boys don't have sex, but you also want to give them condoms. Right. So how do you tell them don't do this? But here's the thing. Um, so, look, I think that we have to start measuring success by other metrics other than just the binary clean or, or or positive or negative drug screen. So I think that life enhancement, life improvement, those are all metrics of success. Safety is a big metric of how people are doing in life, what they're able to sustain. Because as you know, there's not diagnosis without impairment. And so if there isn't the impairment, then there's not a problem. Um, so the victory can't just be, well, look, here's my, here's my uh, urine screen. It's negative. All right. Are you going to school? Do you vote? 
What do you do? To get out of what, bed. Right. You get out of bed. What do you do in the community? Um, yeah. And it's hard to tell. It's very hard to say, look, I think positive changes are recovery. And I'm extreme with it. And it's hard for people to get their minds around. I consider uninfected sterile needles to be an improvement over infected used needles. Um, that's very difficult. I mean, people kind of consider that giving permission to inject. It's like, no, that's not exactly what I'm, what I'm saying. Um, what I'm saying is that recovery is very much a process. You know, we, we tend to think of it as an event or a decision, but lots of people have to get to certain points along the way. And so my big issue and one of my big things is, well, safety first, right? So dead people don't find any kind of recovery. So we have to extinguish those behaviors which jeopardize somebody's life um, uh, in, in most instances, I think. I think that's right. So, and I like how you define, you know, recovery as an element of somebody's humanity, not, or addiction as an element of somebody, not the only defining factor. So can I ask yeah. you a question about AA and for those that don't find it resonates with them? Because there is a huge population, as you know, who defines recovery very differently from an abstinence model or from a 12-step fellowship recovery model. Um, do you think that, I'm trying to figure out how to say this diplomatically, do you think that the principles or the very practice of the 12-step recovery model suits certain cultures better than other cultures? Do you think it is a... Uh well, I think AA is a white male dominated system. Thank you. You said what I right. was thinking. I was trying to figure out how to say that well, diplomatically. It was developed in the 1930s by white Christian males. That ethic is the ghost in the machine. It permeates the entire system. Um, you know, I don't want to uh, be offended for women or tell them how to feel. If I read the primary literature and if I was called woman folk, which I don't know what woman folk is, but it sounds uh, derogatory. Uh, I wouldn't want to participate. I mean, even in New York City, where I primarily is my stomping grounds, which is one of the most diverse places on the planet, there's not that much diversity in AA. You know, it's very male heavy. It's very white heavy. It's very Christian heavy. You know, I always, even as a young guy uh, on the Upper East Side, of Manhattan in a room full of Jews and Hindus and they would pray, you know, oh, let's do the Our Father. I found that to be, I don't, this doesn't seem right to me um, in a lot of ways. You know, with that said, I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. I think that there just needs to be the disclosure. Um, I don't, I'm never in favor of evangelicalism, of coming to our side. I'm in favor of this is how we do it and you're welcome to be here. Um, but there's probably other ways, you know, um, and I actually think that AA, and I don't know that it will adapt, but I think it could. I think there could be reformed AA the way. Um, I think there already is. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be. Limited areas. Yeah, yeah there, I mean, it, that seems to be an organic thing. It's not a sanctioned thing by intergroup or, or anything mm -hmm. like that. I think that um, 
you know, having lived in Brooklyn as long as I have, you know, Judaism shows that you can find your path. You want to pretend it's 18th century Minsk? Okay, that's fine. Or, you know, you want, you want, you want to go to shul once a year? That's fine too. You know, they have those various silos of what helps people from an individual basis. But I think, I think in general, it's one of the big issues that I've, or one of the questions that I've had. Um, the state of California is its largest insurer uh, in the state, right? So state employees, um, whatever that is, teachers, fire, you know, all of that. California is a pretty diverse place and the insurance is pretty good. If you go to an insurance-based rehab that has a contract with the state of California, you see white men there. Um, and that's not who's insured, right? There's a huge Hispanic population among state employees. There's a huge African-American population among state employees. Why aren't they going to treatment? And, so what's you know, the disconnect? What's the disconnect for well, I think the disconnect people outside of that particular demographic? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a cultural um, interpretation, right? So I think a lot of the languaging in AA uh, is from a different time, you know, for a specific uh, demographic, uh, a time that's passed. And I definitely think that we need to update it and it definitely needs to be more user-friendly for a larger population and for a diversifying population. Or it can stay how it is um, and disclose that this is the way, but here are the other options, right? Here's, you know, here's, what, here's what else you can do. I yeah. mean, right, there are people who love mass and Latin. That's fine. But there's also people who like you know, five o'clock folk mass. <laughs> you know, there's lots mm -hmm. of different ways that people can connect to certain things. So, but it's one of the, and then look, it becomes this other issue about how we've criminalized drug use and America's very good at de facto racism. We're very good. It is a long history, you know, where I'm from San Francisco, um, they originally criminalized opium because that's how they could control the Chinese immigrants. When they've used opium as a ritual, as community for thousands of years. Um, and to come in and say, well, now you're a criminal uh, is wrong. And so I think that people feel like they're being engaged in these systems that are not really supportive, but punitive, or that they're made criminals it would be like telling the English, tea is bad, and you tea drinkers are no good for anyone, <laughs> and tea will lead to murder, so we have to arrest you. The English aren't going to stop drinking tea. You know, that's, mm -mm. that's not going to happen. And so I think we have to, like, always consider people's culture in any kind of formation of any policy that we're making. And it's one of the reasons I think that the criminalization of drug use has been a giant red herring that has only hurt people. It's not helped anybody. I agree. When I look at other cultures that are handling it differently, I wonder what are we missing when we make it a criminal issue and not a mental health, not a physical health, not a cultural issue that we can join together and work on. But if we start marginalizing our ill, we don't have to come up with solutions. 
Well, I think that that's part of, yeah, I mean, that's certainly part of it. Um, that, you know, I mean, the top policymaker for drug policy in America, uh, and it's different now, which I was happy to see, she's a, she's a physician. Um, but generally, it's a general or a former police chief. You know, you need a former, you need, you need a lawyer when you've committed a crime. Uh, you, you need social workers or psychologists or doctors when you have a, a emotional problem or a mental health problem. That's a top-down messaging, right? Agreed. So is it any wonder that people who are paying the price of the drug war don't want to come into these systems? It's really not any wonder. And so, you know, who, who, who pays the price of the drug war? Black and brown people. You don't really see a lot of um, women who are, have a Xanax problem with their wine from Greenwich, Connecticut in prison. Uh, but if you were across town and that were cocaine or something, you might. So crack. It, it's a right crack. crack. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so I think it's, it's a, it's a hard thing to convince Americans uh, that the issue with drugs in America is primarily uh, mental health. Like that's how we improve lives is we engage people, we support them, we nurture them along, we acknowledge their humanity, we accept their frailty, we understand they're not going to be perfect. Um, and when they fall, we are there to catch them. Uh, but putting them in prison, you know, I mean, people say that too. I've seen like young guys who have have ended up with um, distribution charges or something serious, and the parents think, "Well, they've learned their lesson. They're coming out, and they'll know." Like, mm-mm, they're going to be more depressed. They're going to be more anxious. It's not going to be good. You know, it never is, and it's also it's really disheartening that the American uh, judicial system doesn't provide care while they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're going to be there, why aren't they getting care? I mean, if they're if they're in one place and they're held, why aren't they given services to help them? It's supposed to be the Department of Corrections, right? We're supposed to correct and help them move through and become taxpaying citizens, not um, tagging them with a scarlet letter for the rest of their lives that they can't overcome. I mean, if you think life was hard before that, try to get try getting a job or a lease after you have that kind of a. So I want to move into that's a marginalized community who do not tend to get help. But you did mention the other community, which is people of wealth, people of affluence who live in different bubble, not getting Mm -hmm. help as well. Why do you think Mm -hmm. that is? I think that there is a, um, there's a measure of shame and stigma with families they, you know, I think it's a hard thing for parents to reconcile the idea of when is it genuinely a problem? Isn't this a phase? Aren't they going to grow out of it? I partied in college. You should have seen, oh, well, in the 70s, this was nothing. You know, I mean, you hear lots and lots of different things. Um, and so I think there's that tendency that things tend to get worse, you know, when they're masked by the denial or the prestige of this person or, you know, if it's a if it's a very bright uh, young man or woman, and they're at a prestigious college, no one wants to golf and say, "Well, we pulled him out of Yale. He's in rehab." You know, right? Nobody, 
Nobody wants to say Nobody that. Nobody wants to say that. I know. I get right. it. I get and it. So and no Biden, wife wants to say to their husband or husband say to their wife or partner say to their partner, you got a real problem here. I know it's culturally supported, but you're drinking too much. It's a tough conversation to have. It is. It's a very tough conversation. And so I think that that's one reason. I think that we are all responsible. Um, you know, we are not we don't we don't make demands from various systems in other words every kid who plays high school football has to have a physical exam they just you know they do and why don't they have a mental health screening before they play high school football why isn't there a mental health screening it's like you know, you go to high school or public high school or private or parochial or whatever you do. Oh, we need your vaccine card. We need your birth certificate. We need this. We need that. Oh, you have to. Oh, you're going to play. Um, oh, you're going to be on the volleyball team. Okay, well, we need this. Nobody ever says, well, we need your mental health screening, you know. Um, and I don't even know if they do this anymore. When I was a kid in, in grade school in the 70s and 80s, we had um, vision tests. You know, they lined everybody up and yeah. did a vision test or yeah. the hearing test. Um, and so I think that we really need to make those investments uh, and, and we need to normalize mental health care so that people are in, involved. They, the point of entry isn't so far down the road that they're very, you know, they're already really sick. That, you know, everything is better with early intervention. You know, what are they? My mother says this every time. She comes back from mass. Well, oh my God, Mrs. So-and-so has cancer, but they got it early. Oh, thank God. Right. 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 But nobody says, well, it's depression, but they got it early. Even though mental health issues have pretty similar um, rates of lethality that other physical health issues do too. So I 100%. think it's, yeah, I mean, I think it's part of, and I'm, I'm 53 years old now. It was very interesting. Um, my, my girlfriend, you know, men don't go to the doctor. Okay. All right. So I promised to go to the doctor. All right. So I went and it was the series of indignity. Really? What are we doing? We're going to do that. Or is that, is that what we're going to do now? Okay. I know go down the hall, this one and that one. And they're going to do, nobody ever said, you know, you're a white male in your 50s. That demographic has such a high rate of suicide. How are you? Which I was kind of surprised. Yeah. You know, they did say the psychologist down the hall is going to do a depression screening. And I'm not trying to self-report to you, Diane. <laughs> right. Saying. Okay. Good. 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 We don't want to come out with that live on no, no. the podcast. But please. No, I'm just trying. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, come on. Why are Why we not? doing this? What you know, I had talked to my primary care physician as well. And I said, you know, even to ask, how are you coping with the world as it is? And what do you use as a coping strategy? will get you a ton of information that you're not even asking for. It will. It will totally get you a ton of information. My older boy is now in his second year of medical school, um, which, you know, I stay out of. It's like, really, you gonna be somebody's doctor? Okay, well, how about the box of shorts and the hamper there, doctor? Um, but anyway, I can't keep my mouth closed. So I had a meeting with the dean, <laughs> and not about him. I just said, well, why is it that the addiction curriculum is like 30 minutes? You know, I mean, there's, 
and it's a meat. I mean, it's just a, it's a grinder of work and, you know, it's very, which I'm all for. I think it should be really difficult, but what I thought was, well, I don't like your doctor is the person who would say, do you drink? Cause I'm going to prescribe you X or Y and you can't drink on this particular medication or so it seemed like a, it seems like a pretty obvious point of entry where people would be referred to other levels of care, but they really don't do it. And part of it is I think that there's not those questions on the boards to be a doctor because schools would teach, they teach to get them through the test. So if there were actual questions about mental health or that intersection of mental and physical health with medical training, it would be a better outcome. But this all goes to the larger question of why do we What do we value? Right. What do we value? And why do we not value um, people who have mental health issues? And by the way, we all do. You know, (laughs) I was going to say, who are you excluding in that? Well, exactly. There isn't. I mean, which is one of the things Mm -hmm. I always tell guys when they kind of acquiesce and see somebody and I said, but, but every human on the planet, if it's a divorce or death, you know, even if it's a situational thing, we're all going to have mental health challenges. Um, and we, we can't just address them in acuity. You know, we have to address them as chronic. Um, and how are we going to, how are we going to manage it? So, you know, look, those are some of my big missions is to, I love your missions. Shrank. Yes. Anything else you would like our audience to know? Because we have just talked for 30 minutes. Have we really? Oh, my God. Yes. What would I like our audience to know? Um, I would like the audience to know that, look, people do get better. You know, recovery is possible. It's all around us. And, you know, even if it's not the traditional way or how somebody or how you thought it was going to look, you know, it's, it, people can do better, for sure. But there's always hope. There is always hope. And thank you, Joe Schrank, and thank you, listeners and watchers on Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you like this episode or any of them, please like us on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.